That means you don't tell a preacher what they're supposed to preach. I was supposed to be able to dig up an old sermon. Uh, but they're like, no, you are to preach on John 1, 1 through 5. And I know why you guys did that. It's because no one else here wanted to. And so you wanted to pick on the new guy. Um, and that's fine. Uh, Alton's going to have to clean it up next week for me. But uh, we're actually going to have a lot of fun as we unpack this. You're going to have to think a little as we go through these five verses. Um, but the payoff is worth it. Uh, and I've actually, I, I've heard, I've got like 40, 35, 40 minutes to preach, which is a luxury because my church would run me off after 30. Um, so let's dig in. Verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Uh, right off the bat, we realize that the Gospel of John is different than the other Gospels we have. Different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Because he doesn't begin with a genealogy like Matthew. He doesn't begin with a birth story like Luke does. Um, instead, he goes back to the beginning. Uh, now, this is unusual because you think of all the people, John actually had the birth story at his disposal. Remember, Jesus' mother Mary lived with John. Uh, on the cross, Jesus said, Behold, your son, and gave Mary to John. And Mary lived in John's household from that day. And uh, if you've ever been around any mother, you know mothers love telling their birth stories. Uh, I have never met a mom who didn't enjoy telling the birth stories, how many contractions, how long it was, and on and on. And, and you deserve it. Women, you deserve it, all right? Uh, that's some bragging rights. And I'm sure that John heard the birth story of Jesus many times. Of all the gospel writers, he was the one who was uniquely qualified to give us those details. He chooses not to do it. Instead, he goes back. He goes way, way back to the beginning. Back to those opening words we have on the first page of Scripture, back in Genesis, in the beginning. Because that's where John wants to begin his account of Jesus, is back at creation. The time when God created the heavens and the earth. Now, when John says, in the beginning was the word, um, spoiler alert here, uh, the word is Jesus. Uh, we don't find that out until verse 17, but I kind of can't preach an entire message without you guys knowing that the word is Jesus. He's the son of God. Um, in the beginning was the son of God, or in the beginning was Jesus. John wants you to know at the start of his gospel that there was never a time in which Jesus did not exist. If you go back to the beginning of it all, if you go back 14 billion years, however long scientists say the universe has been around, Jesus was there. And if you go back five minutes before that, Jesus was there. And if you go back five minutes before that, Jesus was there. There was never a time in which Jesus was not continuing. He's always been. And so right off the bat, John wants to like your, your jaw to drop. He wants to stun you with who Jesus is. Now, one of the reasons that John wants to hit us over the head with this theological statement early is because a change was beginning to happen in the church at this time. After Jesus was resurrected and then ascended 40 days later, uh, there was absolutely no doubt in people's minds that Jesus was the Son of God. There was no doubt that Jesus was God himself, because much of the early church had seen Jesus. 
They had seen the things that he had done. Uh, they had personally witnessed him going up to Lazarus' tomb and saying, come out. And he came out. Many of them had eaten. They were eaten the, from the five loaves and, and the two fish. They saw how Jesus multiplied that small boy's lunch and fed thousands. They tasted of that. Some got to see him command the wind and the waves and obey him. Some got to see him walk on water. Some of those people in the early church, they'd been physically healed by Jesus. Lepers healed. Blind came to see. The lame came to walk. You did not have to convince these people that Jesus was God. They absolutely knew Jesus was God. The question that the early church did struggle with was, was Jesus ever truly human? That's what they struggled with. Was he actually human? Was he really one of us? Or was he God and he just kind of put on our flesh? He kind of dressed like one of us, but he never really was one of us. You know, kind of like Halloween. I mean, this past Halloween, I dressed up as Luke Skywalker. You know, I put on a hood, I put on a little cloak, I go around. But I'm not Luke Skywalker. Everybody knows I'm not Luke Skywalker. It's Joel Brooks pretending to be Luke Skywalker. Is that what God did when he came? He never really was human. He just kind of dressed up like one of us. That's the question that the early church struggled with. Not whether he was God, but whether he, he was actually ever human. Gospels, if you read them, they focus a whole lot on the humanity of Jesus. That's what they're really trying to flesh out. Of course, they do teach us, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they do teach us that Jesus is God, but they spend a whole lot of time fleshing out, and he's human. He's fully like one of us. He is one of us. But when you come to the Gospel of John, it was written many years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it was during a time where a lot of those witnesses People that have been around Jesus, seen those things, eaten that food from him. Like, those people died off. They're not around anymore. And so now there's a new question beginning to arise in the church. Uh, they're no longer wondering, well, we know he's God, but was he really human? And now they're beginning to wonder, are those stories really true? Was he really God? I, I, I mean... Really, he was God. I mean, maybe he was just a great prophet. Maybe, maybe even an angel or, or something like that. But, but was he really God? That's the new question that the church is struggling with for the first time. And, and this is why I love John, because it addresses the questions that our culture is asking. It's what our culture wonders. I mean, if you're going through the grocery aisle, I know how they have all the magazines up there. And I love during Easter and Christmas, all of a sudden all the magazines become Christian. You know, and, uh, and so you're, you're going through, and there'll be like the Time magazine or, or maybe the Newsweek or something like this. Always some article on Jesus. Now, the question that they are asking in this article is never, was Jesus fully human? Because our culture doesn't struggle with that. There'll be a question, was Jesus really God? Was he really God? Come on, he was just a human. John addresses this right at the start. He wants you to know who Jesus is. Jesus is God. There's never been a time when he did not exist, in which he was not always continuing. In the beginning was Jesus. So why does John call him the Word, though? In the beginning was the Word. 
John's got a lot of names at his disposal. I mean, Dion talked about a number of those last week. He could have just gone Isaiah 9. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, Emmanuel. I stop there and go king of kings, lord of lords. I mean, he's got a lot of names at his disposal. But for some reason, he decides to call Jesus the word. I mean, it kind of makes sense in our culture a little bit. I mean, somebody says something true. Haven't you heard somebody say, word? <laughs> word. I agree with that. Word. That's actually not at all what John meant, but it could, it could work. In Greek, the word is logos. In the beginning was the logos. And it is a loaded, loaded term. It's actually one that would have been pretty familiar, very familiar to both the, the Gentiles, the Greeks, and to the Jews, although they would have used that word in a slightly different way. For the Greek, the word logos, it was what their Stoic philosophers used. It meant, it meant the purpose or the reason, the rationale, the reason for life. So the Stoics, these philosophers, they looked around at the world around them, and they understood that there has to be a reason behind it all. They would look at, you know, the trees. They would look at the rivers. They would look at the sky. They would look at them, and they're like, there has to be a reason behind all of this. Now, none of them could agree as to what that reason was. They didn't know what the rationale for it was, but they knew there had to be a why. Why does all of this exist? Because if there is no logos, no reason behind it all, then life itself is meaningless. So what was the Logos? Um, and of course, we need to know the Logos. If, if you were just, you know, walking down the sidewalk and you were to come up on this right here, just laying down on the sidewalk, and you had no idea what this was. You didn't know the Logos, the reason behind it. You pick it up and you're like, what is this? You know, you can use that as a paperweight. Um, you know, I don't know what else you could use it for, but you'd be missing out on its intention. I mean, you could have been like TikToking away, Snapchatting away, doing all that stuff if you just knew what it was for. What's the logos? What's the rationale? If you don't know why something was made, then it's meaningless to you. There's a professor at UAB who was attending our church. Um, four or five years ago, her name was Dr. Ling. She was from China, uh, and she wanted to meet with me after a service, and I said, okay, and so we got together, and I mean, she came out strong out of the gate. We, we sit down, she looked at me, and she goes, Pastor Brooks, I am not like one of those weak Asian women who come over here from China and instantly become a Christian. I was like, that's a strong out-of-the-gate statement right there. Uh, and then I felt like she was saying it was your move. And so I said, okay. <laughs> How do you deal with the meaninglessness of your life? And she goes, granted, um, as an atheist, not believing in a God, I, I do believe that the reason we're here is just by basically an accidental collision of atoms. There is no purpose behind it all. So you are correct. 
I guess my life is meaningless. I said, well, how are you dealing with that? He says, I guess that's why I want to talk to you. I'm not dealing with it very well. And so she later became a Christian, as the Lord would have it. As she went back to China, she ran into a Baptist pastor of all things, came to know the Lord. But she needed to know the Logos. We have to know the Logos. What's the reason we're here? So John uses this loaded theological term. He says, Jesus is the reason. He's the reason we're alive. He is the reason for living. If you want to be more than uh, just a, a doorstop or a paperweight or whatever it is, you've got to know the Logos. It's appropriate for us in Christmas to say Jesus is the reason for the season. It actually harks back to John chapter 1. He is the Logos in this season. He's the Logos in every season. He's the why of everything. Uh, now, that's the Greek understanding of the word Logos. The Jewish understanding was slightly different. It's related, but it's different. They saw the Logos as more of God's creative power. We, we see this in the very first page of Scripture, that God spoke. He said a word, and things came into existence. So God said, let there be light. Boom. Billions of stars. Light comes into existence. But he spoke it. He said it. So this is the word. And this is what John picks up on in verse 3 when he says that all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Everything that was made was made through the word of God. The logos of God. And there wasn't a Jewish person alive that did not believe that. But here's what John is telling us. That word isn't syllables coming out of someone's mouth, not syllables coming out of God's mouth. The word is a person. It's Jesus. Jesus is the one who, he's the instrument that God created everything through, was through him. Another way of saying this would be Jesus is the all-powerful communication of God. He's the means by which God creates the world. Are you confused yet? Don't worry, it's going to get more confusing. Let me sum up. By calling Jesus the Logos, the Word, what John is saying here is that none of you here would exist apart from Jesus. None of you have any meaning in your life apart from Jesus. None of you can know God apart from Jesus. It's the opening statement. Back to verse 1. I was told I got a lot more time. So back to verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. That word with there means facing. Facing God. He's towards God. From the beginning, Jesus is, is right there in the presence of God. He's always been in God's presence. But even more than that, we then read, and the Word was God. So Jesus is both facing God and Jesus is God. The Logos is a distinct person from God, yet is also God. You confused yet? If you're not confused, it just means you're not listening, okay? 
Because if you're listening, you should be confused. What John is doing here in just a few words is really he's beginning to unpack this doctrine of the Trinity. Um, I've got three teenage daughters. Y'all pray for me. So three teenage daughters, and I have told them ever since they've been small, said, you want to know one of the reasons why Christianity is true? Look at the Trinity. Because no one makes up that. No one, if you're just saying, I want to make up a religion, and I'm going to have as the very basis of my faith, I'm going to present a God that no one can understand. God in three persons? It's the most confusing thing ever. God in three persons. But this came from God. Because this is who he is. And so, we see God here, uh, John begins to unpack this, this doctrine of the Trinity that Jesus is facing God, but Jesus is also God. And he'll introduce the Holy Spirit later. And John will unpack this even more in his letter. And once again, in just some really simple words, he says God is, what, is, what does he say? God is love. You know that's saying that God is triune. He's, a, he's personal. God is love. Meaning that God re- exists in a relationship of Father and Son and Spirit in perfect community, in perfect relationship with one another, perfect love with one another. God is love. He's a triune God. And there's such comfort in this. We don't have time to go into all that. Allison will explain to you the Trinity in full next week. But, but, but there is a, a great comfort in this in knowing that the ultimate reality of the universe is not power. It's love. Love has always been there. Love is out of love that we sprang into existence in all the universe. It is the ultimate reality of everything. Love. It came from a triune God. All right, let's move on. Anybody need a stretch break or anything? I mean, I'm good. I get to move around. All right. I told you this was packed. Verse 4. In him was life. And the life was the light men well that's the it's the opposite of what modern man is going to tell you go to any science class go to any university go to high school science class where they're going to tell you that life came after some things you know first you have to have all your matter you, you know you got your rocks you got your your water you got your carbon you, you've got you've got all these elements and then out of that, there comes life. And John goes, you've got the order all wrong. There is life, which has always existed in God. And it's from that life that everything else has come into being. But life has always been there. And what we read here is that this life then bursts forth from Jesus, just like turning on a flashlight, just like you turn on a flashlight and light goes forth. Jesus turned on and life went forth. And that life, that light came to us. Verse 5. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. I love this verse. Up to this point, John's just been talking in the past tense. He changes here. 
like talking in the present. They're like dimes. They're like dimes in the dollar. Jesus shines and he just keeps on shining and keeps on shining. Shining in the darkness. Forever shining. Jesus shined 2,000 years ago and he's not stopped shining. He's shining here in Fairfield. And that brings us here to Christmas. So you know it's Christmas uh, because of the lights. You need lights somewhere. You really can't tell when it's Christmas by all the other things like Christmas music. Any of you listen to Christmas music before Thanksgiving? You're evil. <laughs> I, you do that. You're, you're, you're one of the things that's wrong with this world. And there's actually a, some radio station in Birmingham is devoted to Christmas music 365 days a year. I mean, one month of it is enough to, like, almost put an end to me. Uh, so you can't go by, like, you know, Christmas music is around. It's, it's getting near Christmas. You can't go by Christmas movies anymore. Uh, they begin playing early. You know, like Elf plays earlier now. Christmas Vacation. Um, Die Hard. You know, another post-Christmas classic. You go to Home Depot, and I'm kidding you not, the Home Depot by my house, the day after, um, the day after Halloween, Christmas stuff. Like, what happened to Thanksgiving? Like, I mean, it's just like, you don't even get things. You go, you go from Halloween to instantly there's Christmas trees and everything around. So you, you, but you know what you can tell? is when the communities around you begin putting out lights. The lights begin to come out. When you think of Christmas, you think of lights. And the reason for all these lights is they're symbolic. They're symbolic as to the meaning of Christmas. You see the lights on people's windows, lights on trees, lights on, you know, the, sometimes they wrap them on the little street posts in communities. They're thinking of the light of the world. You know, the world is a dark place. And, and by dark, I, I don't mean that just because you're in Birmingham, Central Time Zone, it's dark at 4 o'clock. I mean, you can't read the news without reading about darkness. There's always someone getting shot. Always somebody getting robbed or raped, some violent act. And, and can I tell you, a lot of the times it says, in Fairfield. As you're reading that news, it says, in Fairfield. The world, I mean, it's full of evil, confusion, Sin, violence, it's full of darkness. That's what the Bible calls darkness. And you guys have been around long enough to realize that no amount of money, no amount of education, no amount of politics can be thrown at this to get rid of the darkness. No election can solve this. The brokenness we feel, the Bible calls darkness. And then breaking through this darkness is Jesus. That's what Dion talked about last week when he preached on Isaiah chapter 9. I think we've got a slide of that. Which is, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And then Jesus came, and when he came, he said, I am the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. Uh, you read that in John chapter 8. If, if you all have your Bibles, 
I'm going to, can I, this isn't geeking me out. This is really fun, though. Just, just can I go over a couple of chapters in John? Man, it makes this pop. Because when Jesus said, I am the light of the world, it's a direct reference to Isaiah 9. A direct reference to what Dion preached on last week. But, but it's kind of hard to see at first. So when you come to John chapter 8, verse 12, that's when Jesus says, he says, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, Jesus is speaking to a group of people. What's a little confusing about this is the story that's right before this in John 7 is Jesus and the adulterous woman. You know, the woman, the time that Jesus says he's without you know, sin, cast the first stone. You might notice that that story's in brackets there. See, it's in brackets. You probably have a little footnote in your Bible that says that this is not part of the original manuscript. Don't worry, it doesn't mean it's not the Word of God. It's absolutely the Word of God. They just didn't know where to put it, so they just put it here in the middle of John's Gospel. Which I get kind of why they did that, but they, they ruined the narrative. So you've got to take away that story. And now you go back to John 7. The end of John 7 should flow straight into Jesus saying, again, Jesus spoke to them. So the end of John 7 says this. They replied, this is the Pharisees and religious leaders, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And then immediately, again, Jesus spoke to them and said, I am the light of the world. You need to see that connection there. Are you from Galilee? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Hey, I am the light of the world. And what Jesus is saying, read your Bible. Go back to Isaiah 9. Because you know what Isaiah 9 says? But in the latter times, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, the people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. No prophet arises from Galilee. Search. Oh, let's go to the Bible. Why don't you go to Isaiah 9? Because you know who comes out of Galilee? The light of the world. And I am the light of the world. Now, besides just wanting to stick it to the Pharisees, which, you know, maybe you wanted to do, why is Jesus calling himself the light of the world? Because light is what brings life to all things. If the sun were to cease to exist, everything dies. If Jesus were to cease, everything dies. There is no life apart from the sun. There is no life apart from Jesus. Just as a plant needs the sun to live, your soul must have Jesus to live. He is the light of the world. But ever since we came in this world, darkness has been trying to snuff out that light. Continually tried for thousands and thousands of years, has tried to snuff out the light of God, and then for the last 2,000 years, trying to snuff out the light of Jesus, and has been unable. Once Satan thought he had it, though. Once Satan thought he was finally able to snuff out that light, because he nailed it to a cross, he crucified it put it in a tomb, thought that was the end of it. Seemed like the light was out. You actually read, um, you read in 
Matthew, trying to think what chapter, I can't remember, I'll blame it on dyslexia. Uh, that when Jesus was crucified, it says darkness covered the land. Darkness covered up the sin. The, the, the land became as night when he was crucified. It's one of a number of things that happened on the cross. That, that's really important for you to understand what's happening on the cross. Jesus is experiencing hell on the cross. Hell is described in a number of ways in the Bible. And I want you to see every one of these happens on the cross. First, it's a place of outer darkness. You read about that in Matthew chapter 8. Outer darkness. It's a place of loneliness and forsakenness. All of Jesus' friends left him. He was even forsaken by his father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's also a place of torment and pain, which Jesus experienced on the cross. Um, it was a place of, um, of eternal thirst. Fire and thirst. And Jesus cries out from the cross, I thirst. He's not talking about his just physical thirst. He's thirsting for God. And it's also a place of gnashing of teeth. Gnashing of teeth is um, when you are angry and bitter at someone. And that's the only thing that's missing from the cross. Because even in the pit of hell, that was not Jesus' heart. Because once again, God is love. Even in the pit of hell, he's crying out forgiveness for his enemies. He's not gnashing his teeth. But what we see on the cross is Jesus is taking all these things that we have, all these pictures of hell, he takes them on the cross, including darkness. He's doing battle with it. Darkness thinks it won. I mean, what else can you do besides crucify, kill, and put in a tomb and just hide it under a bushel? Get that light and hide it under a bushel. Stuff it in a tomb. Seal it up. Three days later, he comes bursting through that. And he conquers the darkness. He endures the darkness so that you might never be in darkness. He took on death so that you might forever have life. Do you believe this? That's what Advent is about. Jesus did not just come to be the light. He came to be your light. I was thinking about this um, uh, I was playing with a flashlight earlier. Probably should have brought one for an, an example. There's just an odd quality about light. If I were to get a flashlight and I were to just shoot it this way, in front of me you'd see absolutely nothing. Nothing. You don't actually see the light there. You only see the light when you get in front of it. And then instantly your hand appears bright. And some of you are in this place as you're looking in front and you're like, all I see is darkness. I don't believe there is light here. And you know why you believe that? Because you're not standing in the light. It's right there. Step in. And the light is there. Just illuminates who you are. Some of you are walking around in darkness. You're like, I don't see. There's no light. It's because you're not standing in it. Jesus bids everyone, come to me. I am the light of the world. Come to him for life. If you haven't, don't leave saved today without doing that. Pray with me first. Jesus, we believe, help our unbelief. We believe that you are the light of the world, that in you is life, and that life has come to us. For those who are in this room that are still sick,
sitting in darkness. May they come to the light. May you shine on them. And when your light comes upon them, yes, it will expose sin, but it will also create new life. And so, Father, we ask in this moment, through your spirit, through your son, new life would begin for those in here in this room. We pray this all in the strong and powerful name of Jesus, our present and our future King. Pastor Joel preached on us to remember that Jesus is the light of the world, that he is the life of the world, that he is the logos and the purpose of the world, and all that is displayed before you and what he's called us to do in remembrance of him upon this table.